This is Pathways to Resilience, the podcast where real people share real stories, helping us build our playbook toward resilience. Thanks for joining us again here on Pathways to Resilience. Appreciate uh, you being here. And also, I'm excited um, about our guest today, Nona Lee. Uh, Nona is the founder and CEO of Truth DEI, who's a consulting firm helping organizations determine current and future growth opportunities and strategies in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Nona consults leadership teams within an organization on current DEI truths, which we'll hear a lot about today, provides strategies and trainings to execute growth and change, and speaks at corporate events on related topics. She holds a Juris Doctor from Oklahoma City University School of Law. I have family in Oklahoma City. They'd be very, they'll be excited to hear that. Um, <laughs> she's completed the Harvard Law School Leadership and Corporate Counseling Program and also the Diversity and Inclusion Certificate Program from Cornell University. Welcome, Nona. Thank you, Melissa. I'm delighted to be here. I appreciate you having me. Yeah. So I found Nona actually on LinkedIn. Um, the just the way that you described your work and going to your website um, just really uh, made me want to talk with you. And um, I'm glad I did. Our initial conversation in preparation for today was really inspiring to me. And I'd say for those listening, I'd really recommend if you haven't listened to our last episode with India Harville, that you listen to that first, uh, because that was about acknowledging disparities. And I think um, just as I had hoped that it's a really nice uh, sort of pre-listen to this conversation, which really then talks about how do we allow our truths um, and sort of help to to unearth those truths um, in the kind of work that you're doing, Nona. So why don't we start by you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you came to create Truth DEI Consulting? Well, I'm actually a recovering lawyer. Um, I spent (laughs) 22 years uh, as in-house counsel in sports, uh, the last several years working as executive vice president and chief legal officer for the Arizona Diamondbacks. And um, in 2020, after George Floyd was murdered, um, like so many other organizations, the Diamondbacks, under the leadership of our president and CEO, Derek Hall, Uh, made a decision to be very intentional uh, about diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts. And uh, and I asked for the opportunity to lead those efforts and was given that opportunity and really found that I loved the work. Mm. And, uh, you know, I did it for a couple of years and, you know, on a personal level, you know, started to experience some some health issues, frankly, because I was it, it was a lot of work in addition to my my legal responsibilities. And um, ultimately, at the end of the day, I had to make a decision about what my priorities were. Mm-hmm. And I had a great career as a lawyer, a lawyer working in sports, but I really decided that I could add more value to the to the world uh, at the end of the day doing this work. Um, you know, especially with uh, the platform that I had thinking, you know, I may be able to get into some rooms mm-hmm. uh, that perhaps others can't and would really like an opportunity to help move people and organizations to transformative change in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. I, um, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about how you are such an example of what happened for so many people. 
um, like what happened in your life paralleled so much what was happening within organizations and other lives um, mm-hmm. after 2020. Um, certainly, as you pointed out, you know, with the death of George Floyd, and not that that was new, not that that asked us to do something we shouldn't have already been doing. And I love, I think it's really important to use the word get more intentional um, because when I hear people say, oh, this is the new thing companies are doing, it's like, well, no, (laughs) you know, this is something that we have, we've owed our communities of color for a really long time. And, um, and to get down to the truths of white supremacy culture and how it has shaped everything. Um, and so just that idea about getting intentional about it. Um, but this also just that this story we hear from so many, I, I know I have it for myself around, the pandemic and what that did to have us kind of stop and say, is what I'm doing the most meaningful thing? Is it the most meaningful contribution I can be making? And you talked about, you couldn't do it all. You learned that you couldn't do it all. You thought you could, but that really this decision came from your, I guess your passion for humanity. Yeah. I think, I think that's a fair way to put it in, and you know, accurate in some way. And in fact, um, you know, part of the truth, you know, we work through a framework of truth at Truth DEI, not only in terms of having people discover where they are and be honest about that and what they need to do to change and be honest about what they're willing to commit to, but for us, truth is also an acronym Mm. um, that we work with that um, addresses the first T is the issue. The R is reconciling. Mm. Wherever it is that you are, um, usually there's sort of some growth opportunity mm-hmm. there for all of us and and forgiving yourself for that so that you can move on because a lot of people just get stuck there mm-hmm. and it's not necessary to this isn't about making people feel guilty this is about helping people move forward the you is understanding um providing people with information that they need to understand what they need to do you know how do they address whatever the issues are that they're struggling with and move forward in this area and um become more inclusive, more equitable? How do they they address those things and how do they welcome diversity into their lives? Uh, the T is taking action. Mm-hmm. So uh, not only understanding, admitting to yourself, uh, arming yourself with education to do better, but actually doing the work, taking action. And then the H is humanity, mm-hmm. all while looking through the lens of humanity. And, um, you know, I often say, if we can just see each other Mm-hmm. as living, breathing, feeling beings. I mean, as the jumping off part point in that we all, as living, breathing, feeling beings, have experiences and we share many experiences. And so if we can start from that place of commonality mm-hmm. um, and see each other in that way and see people for who they are and appreciate them for all of who they are, then we can start to move towards change. Mm-hmm. I resonate with that so much. It was really so much of that was the foundation of this podcast was, um, you know, we don't need to only look to our clients. They have incredible stories, you know, that we serve in our organization or to people who, um, I don't know, sometimes it's, we even marginalize people by saying, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Look at this story. You went from, you know, Harlem to Harvard, like, woo, you know, um, that those, though there are stories of resilience beyond that, that there are stories that we each have. And so just talking to connecting, um, on 
gosh, you know, when we've all had a difficult time where we had to tap into ourselves in some way and make a decision about how we were, we were going to move forward if we wanted to move forward. And, and that is hum, that's the human experience. And then, but then not ignoring the differences in privilege and resource and, um, just societal trauma that, and historical trauma that can impact that, um, depending on who we are. Um, so in your, in your work, when you are helping people sort of mine for these truths or uncover these truths for themselves, what do you find unfolds most for people? What are the themes you tend to see? I think, you know, one of the most consistent things is the realization for people that they have work to do. I mean, even people who feel as though they're far down the road, um, there's always more work to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know, people have that moment when they think, well, I'm a really good person. Right. You know, I, I'm not biased. I, I am I'm not racist or sexist or any of the isms or is or whatever they are. And, you know, then when they start to understand unconscious bias and privilege and microaggressions, they go, wow. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize um, I, I didn't think about myself as being privileged in those ways and how it impacted other people, or I didn't realize that, you know, giving someone the silent treatment or something like that, mm-hmm. you know, because of, of of some difference that I'm uncomfortable with or whatever the behavior is attached to that is a microaggression. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's rewarding to see people um, learn and see their hearts and their, their minds open up and, and, you know, their commitment to say, huh, I need to work on that. And I will work on that. And, you know, what, what can I do? You know, can you recommend workshops or books or whatever it is, movies, anything that I can recommend to people to help them understand these concepts and get more comfortable with them is what I like to do. Can you give us an example of unconscious bias? That might be a new a new term for some people. Sure. You know, unconscious bias is basically, you know, when, when I speak, I ask a couple of questions, right? And one of them is, you know, have you ever been dismissed or rejected because of the color of your skin, mm-hmm. your sexual orientation, your gender, et cetera? And then I ask if you've ever rejected someone based on those characteristics. And I raise my hand to both. Mm-hmm. And with respect to the second, I, I explained to people, it's not because I intend to, but it's an unconscious human response mm-hmm. uh, based on my experiences. And so the way unconscious bias works is that we receive 40 million bits of information per second. Mm-hmm. And the human mind can only process like less than 1% of that. And so it automatically responds by um, relying on our past experiences and, you know, things we heard or learned growing up, whatever it is. And so it leads us to respond in ways that we're not always even conscious of, and we don't necessarily know the impact of. Mm -hmm. And so the key is to unearth and understand and acknowledge what your unconscious biases are so that you can learn to manage them and ultimately eliminate them. But first you really, in addition to knowing what they are, you have to understand the impact of them on other people. That's key. And there's really so many different types of unconscious bias and, you know, they're insidious, these biases, Mm -hmm. and they can creep in in so many ways, such as 
you know, affinity bias or attribution bias. And, you know, I can go on, but there, yeah. there are many different ways that come, they come into play. Yeah. I think it's so, um, it's so important. And I think it's where, as you said, where people get stuck around, okay, well, I'm not a racist. I mean, I have a diverse group of friends or, you know, whatever it might be. And yet what, what you, that example of getting 41,000 bits of information, it's like our brains are going to take the path of least resistance, which means they're going to take the neural pathway that we've, that's been ingrained in us the most. Um, and, and when that happens, we aren't consciously having to make that choice. So that could look like, okay, I could say that, but am I, do I tend to hire people that look more like me or do I have the right empathy and understanding when I do have team members who are people of color who, that they are having a different experience than me, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, or that the, the way in which I run a team or or anything, live my life is absolutely through a white lens. Um, and, and that doesn't mean that I'm a bad person or I can't change, right. That whole, I can't, I can't help what color I I can't help. I know I am, I am a white woman and just being able to own that privilege and get curious about how it shows up. I don't know all the ways in which it shows up. I'm learning more and more all the time. Um, but that unconscious bias, I think it's, it's so important and it's difficult because it's not the stuff that people really even may point out to us all the time. Right. Exactly. People don't realize that they're doing it, you know, mm-hmm. and I mean, we're all human. Our brain all works human. the same. There's uh-huh. no way to avoid it. We have unconscious biases. If you're alive and you're human and you, we, if you're listening, that's you. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> you got <laughs> we, it. <laughs> we, we all have unconscious biases. So it's really um, a matter of figuring out what they are. Mm-hmm. There are ways to do that as well. I mean, Harvard has uh, implicit association tests online mm-hmm. that are free that can mm-hmm. help identify those. And I often encourage people to take those. Um, you know, no test is perfect, but it gives pretty good insight into what they are. And I also encourage people to take them often because our biases change. Yeah. Right. Um, For example, I took when I was much earlier in my career with the Diamondbacks, I took the uh, racial bias uh, implicit association test and found found that I'm a black woman who had a preference, a slight leaning towards white people. But Mm. that probably also had something to do with the area Mm -hmm. um, or the the, not the area, but the, the culture in which I was working. Um, you know, Major League Baseball being a predominantly white male dominated culture. Whereas when I took it after I left the Diamondbacks, I found that I had really more of a slight preference or tendency or bias in favor of black people. So that's something I I really need to be aware of. Um, It doesn't make me a bad person either way, but what's important is to be sure that I'm aware of it Mm -hmm. so that I don't treat people differently because of that bias. Mm -hmm. So that's the work. That's the challenge. Um, and, you know, it's really about uh, intentionality yeah. and focus and being willing to to put the work in. This ties back to um, the last episode with um, with India. She was talking about bias. She worked in a biomedical field um, and had done some studies around asthma. So essentially the symptoms for asthma that doctors were using maybe still are, I think, I don't know that that much has changed, but that that doctors were using as far as the symptom checklist was based on research of white people. And those symptoms that for black people were different. 
Um, and so people of color were being turned away from emergency rooms because it, what it seemed more like was allergies and you're fine. And then, and then they're dying because they were actually having asthmatic symptoms that weren't being seen. And so just from a small, not small micro, as far as me, individual contribution to unconscious bias. And I used you said that sort of my preferences just based on my life experience and what I've been taught and how, what a major impact that can have as we build systems, as we build school curriculums, as we put, put policies and laws into place, um, that if we're not looking at them, we can, we can, and have built whole systems like the medical field that do not address the needs of people of color because they've been based on research of white folks. And it's, and does it matter if my, if my doctor looks like me, the -hmm. symptom checklist they're using didn't. Right. And the reality is that's the basis for so much of our country. Uh And that's why people of color are are generally disadvantaged in so many ways because systems in this country, although perhaps built by people of color color physically, were um, built for white people. And Mm -hmm. so often people of color are overlooked in those types of things. And, And that's why education and diversity, equity, and inclusion work is so important. It's not to, whether it's not even in diversity, equity, inclusion, we're education period. Yes. Um, you know, these efforts to uh, keep uh, African-American history out of, uh, out of mm-hmm. schools and, and that um, is not only harmful to people in the African-American community who often don't really know the full extent of our history. They don't, you know, uh, on a deeper right. level, but how can we move towards change if the white people who are running systems in the country don't understand the history and how things have impacted people who are not part of the majority in this country. How can we ever work towards change and towards fixing the problem? So education is key, and it's it's really troubling that there are really strong efforts to keep so it really is. that information from being shared because that's the only way we get there. You know, mm-hmm. I, I believe... In, it, it may be altruistic or, you know, uh, I believe you can change hearts and minds, mm-hmm. but you can't get there mm-hmm. until people really understand. And that's what gets them to the human, seeing the humanity in other people. Yeah. I couldn't agree with you more. And the more we raise generations of particularly white kids who are hearing the stories of Christopher Columbus and believing that it was a happy Thanksgiving while our native communities and communities of color are hearing a very different story, even through their ancestry. Um, How can we ever be on the same page? I didn't even learn. I wasn't even educated on actual history. And so there's where my implicit bias comes. I didn't hear the same stories that you did. I heard a whitewashed version. Well, here's the thing. We didn't hear those stories either. We we learned the same American history that you did. And we heard the word slavery, but we didn't hear the other side of that and what that really meant and how it impacted our lives every day, still. Every day. Mm-hmm. And that's another reason it's so important because there is an ongoing impact. Mm-hmm. And it's not only important for people who aren't a part of um, these historically underrepresented groups uh, to understand, but you know, people who are so that they can understand better the challenges that we have to confront every day. Yep. 
and understand the perspective of the majority. I mean, but here, here's the the reality. Here are some facts that um, people need to think about. And I talk to my clients about the world is rapidly changing. And you you reference continuing to raise white kids who you know think that uh, Thanksgiving you know was something very different than the Native American population thinks of it as. But um, it, by 2044, there's going to be the U.S. will have a majority minority population, yeah. and yeah, so it's yeah. another reason for us to really start being honest about this and talking about it and and understanding each other as each other's humanity so that we can move forward together because change is coming, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether we want it to or not. Yeah. Exactly. It's not like anybody's planning to take over the population. Yeah, yeah. It's just evolution. And we're seeing that as much as we're seeing um, disturbing resistance to what needs to happen. We're also seeing those, those bright spots and those, those people who are trying to make that change. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it's unfortunate which ones get more airtime and more, <laughs> you know, who comes off as caring for people and who comes off as angry. <laughs> um, but there's good reason to be angry um, around mm-hmm. a lot of these things. And it's not just understanding humanity and one another's humanity, but valuing one another's humanity, which I have to understand at first, right? But Mm -hmm. um, valuing that. So you bring people around the table. And we, when we talked last, you talked about, you know, and we, it came up just now a lot of like, when I'm unearthing my truths, my, my, the biases I'm, I'm, that may be unconscious um, or implicit. um, And then what comes up, I a lot, especially for, I think people of privilege, shame, fear, guilt. Um, are they going to think I'm a bad person? Can I say this thing? I don't know how to, I don't know how to get past the biases that I have. Cause if I say them out loud, I feel like it's going to make me look like a really bad person and that I'll be judged. And you talk about trying to really create a space where people can come to the table feeling that they won't be accused. And that really allows biases. How do you set that up? Well, you know, as I talk to groups, I, I, I talk to them about, um, and I start working with them, that this is not about guilt or shame or embarrassment or accusations or anybody being good or bad. This is about all of us being human mm-hmm. and that all of us have, have room to, to grow. And so what we need to be able to do in order to do that is to be um, vulnerable enough to be honest with ourselves. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned if I say it out loud, often you don't have to say it out loud, but what you need to do is take the tools and do the work, yeah. right? Even if it's on your own, um, you know, it's helpful when you get to the point where you can have the conversation. But part of the way that I'm able to do this is that my approach is always through kindness. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. My, I, I'm not interested in making pe- people feel guilty, making people feel bad. I'm interested in in reaching them and you know with a view towards helping them see things differently. And I learned long ago that you know a couple of things that um, people can't hear you if you're yelling at them. Mm-hmm. And so it's not um, it, it does no good to uh, yelling. I, I mean, you know, certainly actually yelling or if there's that feeling of accusation. People shut down. Mm-hmm. They're out of the game. Mm-hmm. And and that's not who I am in any event. But I also learned that if people f- 
can't be, they can't be vulnerable enough to move in this work if they're made to feel guilty. So just let them know at the outset, look, I'm a product of my experiences. You're a product of yours. That doesn't make either of us good or bad. That just is. So how do we move from there to a place where um, we can understand and accept and value each other? Yeah. That's the end game and where we're comfortable with each other and are comfortable enough to say, I want to know more mm-hmm. about your culture. Um, I don't know how to do that. While at the same time, because where we get into right, white fragility mm-hmm. is, well, at the same time, taking responsibility for your own learning. Yeah. Right. And that's key because um, often people, you know, this is difficult to do. This work is mm-hmm. difficult to do. Mm-hmm. And as you're doing it, um, in this place of privilege, it's sometimes natural to want other people to do that work for you and to educate mm-hmm. you, et cetera. And you have to take some responsibility for that yourself and understand that um, you're not the victim here. Right. Right. This is about moving towards um, conciliation and seeing the humanity in other people and treating um, other people with uh, value and respect and care. Yeah. And it's not about victim here. Yeah. And, and so it's getting past that place of privilege and that place of defensiveness and being vulnerable enough to say, hey, I can do better. And can you recommend some books? Or if you have a friend who's willing to have the conversation with you, that's fine. But also understand it's not their responsibility to teach you about their culture. Yeah. I continue to learn about my when I'm leaning in. I try to catch myself. I can't always, but when I'm leaning into white fragility and for anyone where that's a new term, just this idea that um, as the person in privilege, you know, as the privileged person that somehow someone that I'm speaking to, whether that's a person of color or a person of a different, of a minority sexual orientation, whatever it might be, is somehow responsible for how I'm feeling. And I, and that can even come up at the table when, you know, these are, these are not, these are vulnerable conversations. And I'm so grateful to be a part of a team where we're having these conversations and they're so uncomfortable. Um, and yet I, should not make it someone else's problem that I'm uncomfortable. Instead, it's, I mean, that's, that's when I know I have truth inside me that I need to go dig, right? Is that when that feeling bubbles up in my gut or behind my eyes or because I want to cry or whatever it is, that defensiveness, it's like, whoa, looking inward and not looking at you to, to soften it for me. Absolutely. I mean, part of the context in, in, in this situation is also remembering that often the people on the other side the people in the culture you're trying to get to know have had to bend and fold and yes. and do everything they can to fit themselves into uh, a world that they're not always welcome in. Yep. And yep. so um, not to say, you know, it's time for you to be uncomfortable because everyone else right, has right. been for that. That's not the point. No. The point is that you shouldn't expect them to continue to do that because the whole gift of this work is that everybody's able, everybody's welcome, right? And everybody's welcome to be their full authentic self and they're valued for that and celebrated for that. And I have found that when you're willing to show up and do the work and be at that table, that's when we, when we, when things open up and um, I have felt 
that value for others when I'm at that table together. And yet I just did this last week. It's funny that I was, I brought that up and then I, we were at, um, we were at a leadership meeting and we're talking about just the, the voices and perspectives specifically from a certain group within our organization. And we had a representative from that group at the table. And I said something like, and you're going to help us, you know, you're going to help me. You're going to help us so that we, we hear those voices. And then I stopped, I went, and she looked at me sideways and I said, no, okay, there I go with my white fragility that somehow you're going to be one, the representative for all of the Latinas in the world. And secondly, that somehow that's a burden I'm going to put on you rather than me going out and finding opportunities to listen to those voices myself. Like you got to do my, you'll do all that homework for me. Again, it doesn't mean I was saying it in a mean way or that I'm a jerk, but it, but just that that's where my, you know, just that's a moment to notice. Well, and tremendous respect for that level of awareness because, you know, we're not going to get it right. Right. Um, you know, the, the, we're all continual learners. Yes. And we have to give ourselves space for that mm-hmm. and forgive ourselves when we make those mistakes. I, you know, I appreciated, it's so interesting as you started out at the top talking about being um, a, a, a recovering lawyer and then just the, the gentle way that you have with things, this idea of kindness and curiosity. And I am, that is totally being stereotypical in my mind around, around attorneys, but just um, what a different way it must, does it feel like such a different way to, um, to be engaging in humanity from a professional space? Not really, Um, because for me, you know, I I try to be my authentic self all the time. No matter what, yeah. I was this way as a lawyer, too, Mm -hmm. when I was practicing, and often people mistook my kindness for weakness, Mm -hmm. Um, and, you know, I'm Mm soft-spoken, and I I said that's my superpower, because first of all, I don't speak just to speak. Like, you know, lawyers have a reputation for doing that. They like to hear themselves talk. That's never been my approach. And so when I do speak, people would listen because they knew I had something valuable to say. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't going to yell at them. So they would have to lean in and listen to me. So I really tried to stay in my authenticity and be my authentic self in that work as I try to do in this work as well. Yeah. When is there time, you know, after we spoke, Tyler and I were talking and and she, um, I wish she had said it in the moment and encouraged her to next time, but she said, and, and yet sometimes when you have been so marginalized, the only way to get people to listen initially is to yell. And when I think about the riots after the death of George Floyd and others, and the, just the response, the trauma response of the history being that the history of slavery and all that our brains passes down in our brains just with historical trauma. How do you balance that? That sometimes groups, this is that's a that like they're done. <laughs> they feel like there's not that's the only way they're heard. I don't I don't disagree with that. Yeah. I think yeah. there's a lot of truth to that. And I think um that the murder of George Floyd was a perfect example of mm-hmm. what that was needed, you know. Um and I, I don't know that it was so much well, they were yelling obviously at the police, but yelling at someone as they were about the situation, gotcha. right? And, yeah. and, yeah. and, but yeah, yelling at the police, but it's like, this has got to stop. I yeah. mean, and sometimes you have to yell to, to get people's attention. That's true. In this particular work. Yeah. That's not an approach I would use yep. because people get defensive. I mean, that yelling and that standing in that space in that way 
got people's attention and it got people to start to move towards change um, more globally. Yeah. And it started a movement. Yeah. Not just a moment. And the movement's yep. still going. Yep. And so it's really important for that. But there were also people very, very turned off by it on yes. an individual basis who yes. got very defensive and immediately shut down and couldn't listen because it became about us against them when that wasn't what it was about at all. It really was about all of us. Yes. Right. Yes. If you look drill down on it and treating each other with courtesy and respect and don't treat yes. me differently because of the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, so yeah, I think there are times for that. And um yeah, you know, I, I participated in that in my own way. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, there are times when that's needed. It's times when like in that moment to start a movement yeah. that was critical. Yeah. And we had a, a, a time like no other time in history because of the pandemic mm-hmm. where everybody was watching. Everybody was watching. And if we hadn't been in a pandemic, how might that have been different? I mean, I often ask myself that question. And That's a really interesting question I hadn't really thought about. Yeah. We mm-hmm. were all watching everything in a very different, a way more focused way. Mm-hmm. than when we were more distracted by just life in general before the, yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah. So we can't, we can't let go of that opportunity. We can't let go of that moment, which is this movement because people can't deny what they saw. And we, you know, it's, it, it shined a spotlight on the problem that's been going on in this country for years that, until you could catch it on video. And even then with Rodney King, it was on video, but right. it didn't matter. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's a different time with technology and everything. I think the pandemic really helped with that, but I'm going down rabbit hole yeah. right now. No, I, but I appreciate that, 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 um, that perspective and that question. Um, I end each episode asking um, my guest how they would define resilience. Um, and for you, I think I just took a little further around what is resilience and how does our truth, allowing ourselves to tap into our own truth, help us to access it? I think of resilience as toughness and, and it's like the ability to recover mm-hmm. um, from trauma mm-hmm. and, and move on. And, you know, I can certainly speak from my perspective um, as an openly gay Black woman in the United States is that for me, understanding my truth helps me tap into that resilience because I understand that no one's coming to rescue me Mm. and that I have to get back on my feet and Mm -hmm. continue to move forward and having to do that, knowing that more trauma is going to come. And so it's, it's having the toughness, knowing who you are to know that you're going to have to be able to get up and move on Mm. every day. Mm-hmm. Every day. That's really powerful, almost as bringing tears to my eyes. This idea of, well, one, it goes back to just the disparity, too, for me around tapping into your resilience as an openly Black queer woman mm-hmm. is different than me and the resilience I have to tap into. Um, doesn't mean it's not toughness in both situations. Doesn't mean trauma is not going to come in both situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but that no one's going to come save you. So true. Yeah. And so all we have at the end of the day is ourselves. That's where we have to begin. Yeah. We have to dig 
dig deep and um, find the courage to to move forward, understanding that whatever happened is not okay. Yes. And more than yes. likely it's going to happen again. Yes. So how can we move forward knowing that and what can we do to change that? For and our for own me, that's this, right? For our own exactly. survival and well-being. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So Nona, where can people find uh, out more about you and your work? Oh, you can um, find uh, me on our website. It's www.truthdei.com. And uh, yeah, we're also on social media on um, primarily LinkedIn, also on Instagram and maybe on Facebook. I'm not sure. Yes, me. I get it's hard to to track all these things. Talk speaking about how technology has changed. And you were just at the Super Bowl. <laughs> I was. Was that a blast? Oh my goodness! It's the first time I ever have gone, and what a year to go! Yeah, it was amazing. First of all, just the many um, events leading up to it uh, that were wonderful, uh, but also that game. Mm-hmm. You know, it's historical in so many ways in terms of having two black quarterbacks. You know, after, you know, decades ago, they said black men couldn't play quarterback because they weren't strong enough or smart enough, rather. And so what a historic moment. And um, then uh, a black woman, you know, working as a coach in the Super Bowl for the first time. So I was so grateful to be at that game. And then, of course, Rihanna was amazing. On you know? the <laughs> chain. I mean, I can't even imagine seeing her floating in person. I So I am not a, a sports person. Um, I like the snacks. Um, and I, I, I said, so I was one of those people that was like, I hear that there's a game going on during Rihanna's concert today. Um, but exactly. I can't even, yeah. <laughs> uh, so it was fun enough at home just to, to see. I can't even imagine um, how spectacular it was in person. It was, and it was a great game and, you know, congratulations to both teams and both quarterbacks. I mean, what a phenomenal game. And it's just sad that somebody has to lose. Uh, Right. Uh, Yeah. 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 Both teams fought so hard, but yeah, it was a wonderful experience and something I'm glad I did. It was bucket list and it took me a while to get to it, but awesome box checked. Awesome. Awesome. (laughs) Well, I appreciate this experience of getting to meet you, Nona, and um, to have this conversation. I really appreciate you giving me your time um, to do this. So thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Melissa. And thank you so much for having me. I I always enjoy our conversations and, and certainly enjoyed this one. Thanks so much. Take good care. All right. You too. Thanks for joining Pathways to Resilience, an initiative of Community Solutions. For more information, visit us at www.communitysolutions.org.